last week, Kevin spoke out of Romans 8, and he asked me, he asked me if I would speak this week, because Aubrey is going to be out of town, and I said, sure, uh, what, what should I speak on? He said, anything. <laughs> Give me some focus. Um, he's like, well, I'm going to be speaking on Romans 8 the week before, and I was like, all right, I'll just, I'll pick up where you left off. So uh, Kevin was speaking to us about being adopted as children of God, that our relationship with God has seen a change when we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that we are no longer who we were in relation to him, and that new relationship is that of children to a father. Um, now let me, let me back up a lot and do a running start into our text this morning. Incidentally, if you could get out your Bibles and open to Romans 8, if you don't have scripture, uh, please borrow a Bible from someone near you. If, you look on somebody next to you, that's totally fine. We're going to be walking through the text this morning, and I'd like for you guys to be able to see it. So as you're getting those out, let me do a little run-up to Romans 8. Romans 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, is about a lack of righteousness in humanity, that all humans are broken, sinful, and rightfully under the condemnation of God. Romans 1 through 3, a lack of righteousness. Romans 3 through 5 is about God's provision of righteousness, That God, through Jesus Christ, has taken on himself the guilt and shame of the world. And through faith in him, just as Abraham had faith, Romans 4, um, we can receive the righteousness of God and now live under his grace, Romans 5. So Romans 1 through 3 is a lack of righteousness. Romans 3 through 5 is God's provision of righteousness. And then Romans 6 through 8, where we're going to be this morning is the life of righteousness. And the life of righteousness isn't simply um, being morally upright. Uh, Paul gets to that in Romans 12, is when he starts bringing in moral commands. Incidentally, uh, the first command in in the book of Romans shows up in chapter 6. And the first command in the book of Romans is to believe something. And that is to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The first commandment is not a moral command, but a command to believe something about yourself in light of God. So Romans 6 through 8 is about a life of righteousness, who you have now become as a result of being part of uh, having faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 6, we've got to hit on something real fast before we can get to Romans 8. I've got to lay a little foundation, and then we'll jump over to Romans 8. Sound good? So Romans 6. Uh, we'll start at verse 1. Um, and the main thing I want you guys to see in this is that being a Christian is not about adopting a belief system. That being a Christian is about a constitutional change that has happened to you. So we aren't merely followers of Jesus the way uh, a Buddhist would follow the teachings of Buddha or a Muslim would follow the teachings of Abraham or uh, Muhammad or uh, a Jew would follow the teachings of Moses Uh, You would think, therefore, a Christian follows the teachings of Jesus. And while that's partly true, it's insufficient. We don't merely follow the teachings of Jesus. We have been united with him. We have been constitutionally changed in our being. And that's what this text is going to say. Let's look at it. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace can increase? I mean, we're forgiven, so why not just sin all the more, right? He says, no, that's not possible. He says, by no means. We die to sin. So here's some of the changes. Look at this. We died to sin. He's not talking in analogy or hyperbole. He's saying this actually happened. You died to sin. How can we live it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we were joined with him in his death. 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that the old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. You have been united to the person of Jesus Christ. You have not simply adopted a belief system. You aren't merely a follower of teachings. You have been constitutionally changed, and the old man, the sinful nature within you, has been crucified on the cross with Jesus. He is dead, and a new person is alive within you. Now, this, this presents a real struggle, and that's what we're going to get to this morning in Romans 8, that there is a struggle to live the Christian life. Um, a, few, a few years ago, 2010, author by the name of Isaac Marion wrote a book called Warm Bodies. Um, teenagers are all perking up because uh, this is the genre of warm bodies is could best be described probably as a post-apocalyptic teen zombie romance. Um, so it's kind of like Twilight meets The Walking Dead. Uh, so if you're culturally aware of these things, that's a zombie television show and a vampire werewolf romance movie series. Anyway, so this book is kind of this, uh, it fits in that genre. And uh, what Isaac Marion does is he plays a little bit with the, the zombie mythology that's been developed. We all know that, well, I think you would know, that zombies, <laughs> zombies love brains. Um, and, and Isaac Marion plays off of this and gives reason to zombies loving brains. And he says, the reason zombies love to eat brains so much, sorry if this is too graphic, I work with 18 to 20 year olds. So um, the reason uh, zombies love brains so much is that uh, when they eat the brains, they get to relive the memories, the feelings, the emotions, and the thoughts of the person they're consuming. And so there's something about brains that makes them, this dead zombie, feel alive somehow. Well, Isaac Marion plays on this, this whole concept. And, it, and the whole book, Warm Bodies, follows this one particular zombie. His name is R. He's forgotten his name, and so all he can remember is it started with an R. And he's narrating the entire book in the film. Um, and so he's like, I'm R, but I can't remember my name. So his name is R. And R and some of his zombie buddies go out hunting uh, to find some food. They find a group of people. They eat. And in the process, I'm trying to tone it down. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and in the process... R consumes Perry, this guy, um, and he eats his brains. But something happens that hadn't happened before. And, and R uh, begins to not just experience Perry's memories and his thoughts and emotions and his feelings. Something happens where he sees Perry's girlfriend and this group of people who are being attacked by the zombies. And he goes and he saves her. And he protects her from the other zombies. And, and this, this strange experience begins to happen in him. And in the days to come, he starts to hear Perry speaking to him. And he starts to love the things that Perry loves, his girlfriend. And he starts to become who Perry is uh, to the point that he starts to become human again. And it's, it's a, a zombie coming back to life. And he still has his zombie body, but inwardly he's renewed uh, to the point later in the film and in the book, he's, he's out uh, driving around because zombies can drive. And he has his convertible down and starts to rain. And for the first time in years, he feels cool rain on his skin. And at one point he gets drunk and attacks a human. And he's like, wait, I can't do this anymore. And he has to stop. So this, I don't know Isaac Marion's belief in God or his theology, but this is a, an amazing picture of the Christian 
coming into union with the person of Jesus Christ. We don't simply believe that Jesus died for us. We have been united with him in such a way that his life is in us, bringing us back to a full and true humanity that we're supposed to have within us, that we're renewed from within to the out by taking in and consuming the body of Jesus Christ, by believing on him, by having faith in him. So, this is a struggle to live with this tension of a dead body and a renewed spirit. And this is what Romans 8 is talking about. So let's, let's look at Romans 8. So we saw last week that we had been adopted. We are now children of God. In verse 17, if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Two things show up in these two verses, 17 and 18. Suffering and glory. They're connected together. And I want to suggest to you that the sufferings of Christ that Paul references here in verse 17 is the struggle to bring forth life. That this is the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Now, there, I think, you know, we could say, well, is it persecution? Is it this? Well, clearly it's the suffering of Christ. And yes, you could say there's um, maybe some persecution things that happened to him. But I think in a broad way, and you'll see this play out later in the text, that the sufferings of Christ are the, the struggle to bring forth life. Not simply a persecution. And so do we, if we're children, we will share in that struggle to bring forth life so that we may also share in his glory. So glory isn't simply heaven, it is heaven, uh, but it is the glorified humanity. You being who God intended you to be from the very beginning. From before time, God knew you, and he had an intention for you, but sin has spoiled you. And there is this glorious renewal that God wants to bring about in your life and in all of the creation. And so in this renewal, this is, this is the glory of God. Um, and so we suffer and move into glory. Now, this isn't a new theme for Paul. He has set this up back in Romans 5 already. It's a little chain, if you have your Bibles, flip with me. This suffering to glory chain. And Romans 5 is going to bring another word, which is going to bring in again in Romans 8. It's the concept of hope. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, in other words, we're right with Jesus, with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God, no longer hostility towards God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and here it is, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the glory, the, the, what is to come, and the life that will be. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. And there's going to put together this chain to show how suffering leads to hope and glory. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces Perseverance. The same way uh, when your body gets a, a, a disease, uh, you don't try to produce white blood cells. Your body just does it. And in the life of the Christian, when there is suffering, it is, it is produced within you is perseverance, a willingness to press into the difficulties. Suffering, the struggle to bring forth life, produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And that would be, verse 2, the hope of glory. And hope does not disappoint us. So suffering, the struggle to bring forth life, leads to the hope 
of glory. Now, biblical hope isn't like, uh, like we use the word hope today. Uh, the way we, we think of hope as like, I hope though Southern California gets some rain because they're in a drought. Or I hope she likes me if I ask. Uh, or I hope my kids get a good teacher in school. Um, this is kind of just wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible isn't about wishful thinking. It's not about wish fulfillment. Hope is about certainty awaiting fulfillment. Hope is certainty awaiting fulfillment. So let me see if I can explain this to you. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a family that we celebrated Christmas big time, uh, big time with presents and gifts. Like, we were good Americans. Um, tons and tons of presents, and I loved it. I still love presents at Christmas. And um, I was the type of kid who I needed to know things, and I couldn't stand not knowing what my presents were. And so I snooped big time. I was, uh, I don't remember when I started, but I remember rummaging around in bags under my mom's bed and like finding out what G.I. Joe men I had got, what the new Star Wars thing was going to be. And I was just like thrilled about it. My mom would find out, moms are smart, kids you can't get away with much. And so she figured it out. And the next year at Christmas, um, I would go and I I looked underneath the bed, no presents. I was like, dang it. She was on to me. So I was like, okay, where are the presents? I started looking all around the house. I couldn't find them. And uh, one night, I was woken up in the middle of the night. I don't know what time it was. Um, and I heard in, in my bedroom was like the pull down stairs to the attic. You know what I'm talking about? Those old creaky things. You pull them down, the, the ladder comes down. And I, I heard somebody going up and coming back down and closing back up. I was a smart kid. It was my dad, and he was taking bags up into the attic. And I was like, all right. I know where the presents are. So it's in my bedroom. I mean, come on, parents. Um, <laughs> close the door. I go up there. Sure enough, the Christmas presents are up there. Uh, so I find out everything I'm getting. I'm totally excited. Well, they find out. I don't know how they found out that I, I probably was moving the bags around too much. And they're like, we didn't leave that bag where that was or something. And so the next year, I think I was like getting to be eight or nine at this point. <clears throat> um, the next year... My mom decides she's going to just keep all the Christmas presents in the trunk of the car. Now, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, the only place the keys are are in my dad's pocket or in her purse, and they're with them at all times, or if they're in the house, the keys are there, uh, and they're there. So there's no way I can get into the trunk of the car, right? Wrong. Right. <laughs> so one day, dad's at work, I'm at home, and mom is in the shower. So I get the keys out of her purse. I go and I open up the trunk. Sure enough, all the Christmas presents are there. We're almost through. I figure out everything I'm getting. Totally stoked. Close it. I think I got away scot-free, except for the fact that my neighbors ratted me out. They called. They called my mom and said, your son was going through the trunk of your car. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, so the next year, we're going somewhere with this. Next year, my mom decides that's it. I'm just wrapping everything. As soon as I get home from the store, I'm wrapping up the Christmas presents. Um, and so she did. She wraps them all, perfectly packaged, got their names on them, everything, and they're all sitting there. She's like, this is sure defense against snooping. It's not. My mom was a teacher, and so she left, school, left for school about 30 minutes before me and got home about an hour after me. Well, that's plenty of time to get a pair of scissors and some tape and on the end of the package where it's kind of folded down nicely and that one piece of tape on the end there, you take the scissors and you cut real carefully. You open up the end. You slide out the box. 
You look in, you find out what G.I. Joe men you're getting, you slide it back in, perfectly seal it, and put a piece of tape right over the other one. Children, don't do this. <laughs> um, so, this is biblical hope. Those gifts are mine. I know they're mine, they have my name on it, and I know exactly what it is that I'm getting. Certainty, waiting fulfillment. I had to wait with eager expectation for Christmas morning. People ask me, well, didn't that ruin it for you? I was like, not at all. I mean, the surprise was amazing when I opened it. You know, I was like, that was awesome. Uh, If anything, it produced in me a greater anticipation and delight for Christmas morning. This is biblical hope. Certainty, waiting fulfillment. Glory, the, the you that God intended from eternity past is already present in eternity future. Hidden with Christ in heaven. Your name is on it. And so our, our function, part of our function now, isn't to just try to be moral and try to be upright. But Colossians 3, to set your heart and mind on things above where Christ is seated. And when he comes, you too will show up with him because you're in him. You have been united with Jesus Christ. So if you want to know who you are, you want to know who to be, you want to know who you will one day be, that God intended you to be before the fall, look to Christ in heaven where you are seated with him. You can snoop. You can sneak a peek and be like, oh, yes, I want to live into that. But living into that is difficult because I still live in this body of flesh. And though I will one day be that man and you will one day be that man or woman, living it now is a struggle. It it is the struggle to bring forth that life that I will one day possess. To bring it forth now, it's rough. Being a Christian isn't easy. That's what Paul is saying here. Back at the text. Our present sufferings, the struggle to bring forth life, isn't worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Verse 19, he's going to shift gears a little bit and start talking about creation. That creation, too, is experiencing this struggle to bring forth life. In verse 19, he's talking about the posture of creation. The same way that I had eager expectation because I knew what the presents were. This is the posture of creation. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for us, for the sons of God to be revealed, for the day to come when God's children show up in complete freedom and rule creation the way we were meant to. And here's why. Here's why creation is in eager expectation. Verse 20 and 21. The creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. God subjected creation to frustration. In Genesis 3, it wasn't man and woman who were cursed. I don't know if you know this. It was the creation that was cursed. God cursed the ground. He didn't curse man. And creation is cursed as a result of the fall. In thorns and thistles and weeds begin to grow up, and that makes it difficult for man to work the soil, but it's the creation that's cursed. God subjected the creation to frustration. It wasn't its choice, but the will of God who subjected it, but God did it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God, that we will one day be the men and women we always were intended to be. And the creation will be able to breathe fresh and breathe anew under our right rule of it. This text, three little verses, 
is a great text on creation care. And it, it is important for us uh, to consider it. But in the big picture of what Paul is doing, he's using it uh, not to set up some kind of theological stance for us to now go care for creation. We should be doing that. He instead is saying, you, Christian, are not alone in your suffering. If you look up and look around you, all of creation is with you in this. Um, And so, verse 22, we find that we have something in common with creation. He's going to use an analogy of pregnancy. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it's not just the creation that's groaning in the pains of childbirth. We, too, are also groaning. And this is the big point Paul is trying to make, that we are suffering, and this is part of the life of the Christian. It is difficult to be in a body of death and be renewed within and to bring forth life. It is a struggle. So let's look at verses 22 and 23, and let's work them backwards. So verse, the bottom of uh, verse 23, it says, that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that's glory. That's what we're talking about, that this is the glory. This is the end. This is where we're going our adoption of sons. And I thought we learned last week that we were already adopted. Well, we are, but we're awaiting our full adoption. And the full adoption happens when the, your body is redeemed. Our bodies are decaying. Our bodies will die. Your spirit is alive to God right now, but your body will die. And we are waiting for our bodies to be redeemed. And when that happens, I will stand before God in a new body and have full adoption. So I'm adopted now, yes, But maybe it is that my relationship with my father is kind of a Skype relationship and an email relationship, and I talk to him on the phone relationship, but I've yet to see my father. But one day, my body will be redeemed, and the adoption will be full. The adoption will be complete. Until that point, though, verse 23, we wait. I don't have that yet, but I do have something. It says, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits of the Spirit are those small changes that have already begun in you. It's it's life coming forth. It's becoming the new person already. So um, I I, uh, went with some friends last summer down to Bourbon County, Kentucky, and we went around to a bunch of the bourbon distilleries down there. It's called the Bourbon Trail. You go around all the different distilleries and see how it's all made. And I came back from that fascinated, and I was determined to quit my job and Talked to probably half of you in here about, do you want to start a distillery here in Harrisonburg and get that old railway house and it'd be awesome. Um, that wasn't meant to be. But as I was sharing with um, Stephen Apotnik, Stephen and Leah were over at my house for dinner and I was telling them all about it because I was like, oh, Stephen, he'd be into this. He's like, yeah, my, my nephew or cousin, what is it? His, what? His nephew just built a distillery uh, south of Charlottesville. And I was like, whoa, are you serious? Because like, that's not like home brewing a beer. Like, If you own a distillery, you're either a moonshine or doing it illegally, or you've gone through all the right you know, government systems to be able to build this huge still and distill spirits. And he had done it the right way. Um, and so, uh, so Stephen called me, and he's like, hey, why don't you and Tristan and I go down and, and check this place out? And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Because you know, when you're down in Bourbon County, Kentucky, you can only get clo- so close to the stills. Um, you can only kind of get so close to the whole process. And here, was like, we went, and there's a room about this size, and just set up with this massive copper still, and it's beautiful. I was like, oh, this is so sweet. And it was functioning at the time. They were uh, making, like, their second run, I think, ever. 
And, and uh, as, as the, uh, I don't want to go through the whole process, but as, as the uh, moonshine comes off, it's called a spirit, it comes off the still. It's this clear, uh, high-proof liquor. Um, and we got to stick our finger in it and taste it. And I was like, oh, that's good. It's sweet. It's delicious. Um, but you can't have it yet. Because in order for it to become bourbon, it has to sit. It has to sit in a barrel for four years. Just sit there. Like, ah, okay. <clears throat> um, that, what comes off the still, that's a first fruit. But it isn't matured yet. It, it has to sit and it has to wait. And, and that's us. That we have a first fruit of the Spirit. All of you who are Christians and know Jesus Christ have seen changes in your life. Just because you're suffering, struggling to bring forth life in other areas of your life doesn't mean you don't know the Lord. You've seen first fruits. You have a first fruit of the Spirit. Remember what it tasted like. Awesome. That's great. But we're still just in this waiting zone. But we're not waiting like a barrel of bourbon. Um, We're waiting, like the text refers to, a pregnant woman. We are actively waiting, not passively waiting. And so this picture of pregnancy really starts to tie together everything Paul has been saying. The hope, certainty, awaiting fulfillment. Ask a pregnant woman, do you have any children? Yeah, I have a child. Where is he in the nursery? No, he's here. Well, where is he? He's here. Like, do they have a child? Yes, they have a child. Do they have a child? No, not yet. Yes, they do. Right, it's certainty, awaiting fulfillment. But the picture we have isn't just one of hope, certainty awaiting for some pregnant woman. We have the picture, verse 22, in the pains of childbirth, struggling to bring forth life, suffering. Now, full disclosure, I've never been pregnant. So <laughs> I'm going to take some guesses at this. Um, my guess is that that's an immense struggle. That requires times of waiting, but it's an active waiting as pain sets in and then participating in the difficulty. It's something that's at once happening to you, and yet you are also doing the work. It's difficult. Um, Melissa Coleman, when she had uh, Ben, you probably don't remember this, but about, how old is he now, four years ago? Um, I, went, I went over to their house to visit right after Ben had been born. And I asked Melissa, I said, how, how was the delivery? And she said... Um, I, I was laboring for five hours. I forget how many hours you told me. But, but you, Melissa used this phrase that I'd never really heard before. She said, I, I was laboring for five hours. Now, normally I hear people say, I was in labor for five hours. Uh, and language means a lot to me. I, I get hooked on words. And so when she said that, I, I walked away. I was like, that's different. Because to be in labor, it's like, well, I could be in Florida. But that, you know, that doesn't, it's like, you know, as a guy, I'm like, oh, you just went to labor, right? It's like, uh, no, the way she said it was, she didn't say I was working for five hours. She said I was laboring. And I started thinking about that. I was like, well, that's interesting. Because this is what we're called to do as Christians, is to struggle to bring forth life, to labor to enter into the difficulty. It's not work. It, it, I mean, it, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's, it's not work. Work is task-oriented. Imagine, imagine if you're taking a, a poetry class and you're assigned a to write a poem. Um, <clears throat> to, to write that poem would be work. It's a task. You need to get it done so you can get the grades, so you can move on to the next thing. Work is task-oriented. 
But imagine if you were uh, dating or you wanted to write a poem for your wife or your girlfriend. That's labor. I'm not doing it just to get it done. Labor is always associated with hope. Hope labors. I see something that could be in this relationship, and I'm going to fight for all the right words to put in this poem to give to my loved one because I have a certainty of what this relationship could come into in its fullness. And so hope labors. The certainty of fulfillment struggles to bring forth life. And this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a child of God is not this laid-back freedom where I can just kind of take it easy. It's something that's been brought upon you through a change within that you must participate in. And it's a joyful, hope-filled, painful struggle to become the man or the woman God always intended you to be. So let's look at these last two verses. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Patiently waiting. Not waiting like you wait in a doctor's waiting room for 30 minutes just to get into the office and then wait another 30 minutes for him to show up. Not that kind of patient waiting. We don't wait patiently like you wait in a doctor's waiting room. We wait patiently like you wait in a doctor's delivery room. We've shown up, and we are seeking to bring forth life. Wait patiently. Remember the first fruits that God has brought forth in your life. Don't let the struggle discourage you. One day, the body will die. You'll be renewed, get a new body, see God face to face, He will delight in you, you'll delight in him, and all will be as it was meant to be in the beginning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to call upon him. Jesus Christ died for your sin. He came to take condemnation in your place, not to heap condemnation upon you. All this talk of struggle and labor and work is always in partnership with Jesus Christ, not to earn his favor. You cannot work your way to God. You cannot be good enough for God to somehow say, okay, I love you now. All you can do is say, I lack righteousness, and so I cast myself upon you, Lord Jesus. I come to the cross where sin was paid for, and in that moment, you receive a constitutional change to your being. This isn't about religion. If you think being here on Sunday mornings is about religion, it's not. It's about being renewed and being restored. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ, let me invite you to come to him this morning. If you don't know what that means or or have questions or or want to know what would I do, what does that look like, please come talk to me. Come talk to Kevin. Uh, Many of us in this room would love to talk with you about the person of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you've professed faith in Jesus and you know him personally, take courage. Struggle is normal in the life of the Christian. You are renewed within. Outwardly, yes, decaying, but there's first fruits. Take hope. Certainty awaiting fulfillment. Struggle to bring forth life. And you do it in partnership with Jesus Christ. You do it in the strength of the Spirit. It's not, it's not you alone. 
It's you with the Lord. Let me pray for us.